I really have fun, you know, sort of teasing snobs, put it, put it this way, because it makes them uncomfortable when they can't socially stratify you. Yeah. And they wonder, why is he here? Why is he friends with this person if he didn't go to Princeton? Apparently, and I don't know if this is true, there's never been a character like this. Like, there's never been a heroine of a book that's actually um, biracial in this way. And so I've been hearing from so many biracial people who have read the book and who have said, thank you. The Crazy Rich Asians 2 is being done by Warner Brothers. And um, this is a, you know, a whole other book and a whole different series and it's being done, um, done by Sony. It'll be interesting to see which actually <laughs> makes it to the theaters first. You know, um, I think all of Hollywood at the moment is on pause. I really play tricks. I embed as many of my friends and family as I can in, in the books. And just so, you know, they recognize themselves and have fun with it. The nasty characters are never based on people I know. So. <laughs> yeah, or that's they, the they way might to do it. Be, but they, they don't recognize themselves. <laughs> <laughs> they all think it's the other one. Hi, and welcome to another Best Sellers. I'm Natalie Jameson. And I'm Phil Williams. And today it's Quan time. You didn't just do that, did you? Did just do that. You did. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> tell you what quiet time is in a moment. First of all, the part of the world where we weren't expecting to be heard and we are being heard, Brazil. Nice. Now you're talking. I like a caipirinha. Again, or, I've just bought his straight round of food and drink. Or Amazing. A, ca- a caipirinha even. <laughs> um, in Ibiza, the caipirinhas are very strong. As yes, I found I- out to my detriment on several mm. occasions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, if you have one here, you can normally do three or four, and over there, really, three mm. or four cocktails. Mm. They're like half a tumbler over there. <laughs> I've never really worked that out either. You know, with um, continental cocktails, I've never worked out how they can. I know that their tax is a lot less on their spirits, but even so, how do they afford the stock just depleting? You know, when they hold a bottle up and go and just stick what looks like half a bottle into your drink. That's where your brain goes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How are, they, how are they maintaining how are they, their stock flow? How are they making a profit out of this? <laughs> Literally, I'm getting <laughs> smashed for 10 euros. <laughs> it's, it's as good as free. Yeah, well, I should imagine then when you are in that state, uh, they'll be like, sir, would you like this lobster oh, platter? And then they'll be like, me yeah, when I'm I would. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, bring, exactly. Give me everything. <laughs> Upgrade. Yeah, you sorted. <laughs> she knows me so well. So Brazil, anyway, have you been? No, I haven't. Uh, no, my husband neither. has. Oh, yeah. Did he like it? Was he working out there? Or was he, he was working out there, yeah. Uh, yeah, he really liked it. Really liked it. Said it was beautiful, uh, amazing food, um, gorgeous views, lovely people. Yeah, I'd love to go. We um, we haven't addressed, uh, and we perhaps this is the episode to address it if we're going to address it, but I need to kind of couch it in case your husband isn't cool with it. <laughs> Do you know where I'm going with this? No, I really don't, but I've kind of got this sinking feeling in my stomach. <laughs> Do you remember when we uh, recorded Kevin and it was late at night? <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> okay. Are we all right to talk about that or not? Uh, he's not going to listen to this, uh, my husband that is, and okay. I haven't spoken to him about it, but it's fine. Okay. So we record these interviews with our authors on Zoom, right? And obviously we never use the pictures just so we can see them and the eye contact is much better for the interviews. And it's um, nicer for us because it feels like you're having a proper conversation. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And um, Kevin's in L.A., so it was a very late recording for us so that it wasn't too early for him because they're minus eight and my radio show now means that I couldn't do it earlier in the evening. 
So uh, it was about 11 o'clock at night when we got through to Kevin Kwan. And about 45 minutes into the recording, just as things were starting to come to a conclusion. Um, so heading up towards midnight. Yeah. Behind Natalie appears this image, <laughs> which at first I thought was a ghost because um, it was quite ghostly because you've got some frosted, semi-frosted glass, haven't you, that separates yeah. what was, I think, your lounge to your kitchen. Yeah, lounge to the hallway, yeah. Right. And uh, then I can start to see this image. And I'm thinking, Kevin Kwan must be able to see this as well, right? It's not just me. <laughs> Is he going to say something? And no one referred to it, which was a relief. And it was Natalie's husband in his T-shirt and boxer shorts going to get a... I mean, luckily, he was... For a man, I've got to say, he was very well behaved. Not once did I see him scratch. <laughs> yeah, he's very well behaved. Um, House I think, trained. <laughs> I think what you should do is listen out, because I think there was a bit where all three of us inadvertently sort of did a little uh, school-ish giggle. <laughs> <laughs> kind of slightly under our breath yeah. about 45 minutes in but then none of us mentioned no it because we were all too it. polite <laughs> but listen out for that when we chat to Kevin Kwan Kevin Kwan is the author of the Crazy Rich Asians trilogy of books and frankly a master of writing satirically about the supremely wealthy who breathe rarefied air most of us are, are unlikely to ever sniff. He's worked in magazines and newspapers as well, from Martha Stewart's Living to the New York Times, and he's also completed a lot of visual projects for the likes of Oprah Winfrey. Um, I absolutely want to know about that one. His new novel is called Sex and Vanity, which transports you to glittering Capri in the Summertime. So, Kevin Kwan, welcome to Bestsellers. Thank you for having me. So, we should say you're in Los Angeles right now. Yes. Sunny, gorgeous, having a weird time as everybody is in this strange <laughs> pandemic world we live in. Yeah, sunny, gorgeous. Wish I could go to the beach, but the beaches are closed. <laughs> the streets are closed. The, you know, the, the, the hiking grounds are closed. And, you know, it's a good thing, actually, that they're closed. Yeah, um, for because sure. Because we really need to, to nip this in the bud, in, in my opinion. Yeah, I think in most of the world's yeah, opinion yeah. as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, we should probably start with saying that Sex and Vanity, it's inspired by E.M. Forster's A Room with a View, which I know is a book that you absolutely love. Um, and it's a book that I actually read only about five years ago, I think. I saw the film like eons ago. But um, embarrassingly, I totally didn't twig <laughs> as I was reading Sex and Vanity. It took me ages to like work out, ah, Oh, this is why <laughs> some of it sounds like it was kind of like really comforting and familiar and because I can never remember names and uh, a lot of detail like that. And then I was like, oh, it's so clever. Now I see it on a whole nother level. Um, so do you does it make a difference if people are aware of Forster's book or are you kind of just happy for people to come to your work however they do? It really is, is really up to the reader. I mean, I think they'll enjoy it equally if, if they don't know his work. And if they haven't seen the movie, because I also love the movie, mm. you know, the Merchant Ivory the adaptation of the movie. And the way I, I see it is that my book is a sort of a conversation between Ian Forster's book and the James Ivory movie. And so I play a game with the two of those things, but mm -hmm. it's really not necessary to, to, you know, have read or seen any of those before you read my book, but you might want to pick it up afterwards. Yeah. No, it was really interesting. I definitely it, want to go back. It yeah. was on here. The film was on here about two nights ago. Mm. So knowing you were coming on, I was watching the film again, which, I mean, they all look very, very young. I think it's 1984 when that was made, but it strikes... It's amazing, isn't it? Daniel Day-Lewis in his only comedic role ever. <laughs> and he's brilliant. He's so... I wish he would do more comedy now, you know? Yeah. But, the, the, the comedy in it, um, 
the comedy of of manners i thought it was is that and that seems to be what you go for but do the manners of 1908 or whatever it is how are they differing from the manners that you're poking fun at well it's interesting because i i find that things don't change <laughs> you know 100 years later people are still obsessed with the same things which is you know breeding and and family reputation and expectation you know what you think your parents or your family expect you to do to be the good child um that never changes and it didn't change for lucy honey church in 1908 and it certainly doesn't change for my character lucy tang churchill in 2013 is when i believe the book begins there's i mean there's so much in this book that i really enjoyed i think first of all i mean we were kind of not overly joking but obviously it's a strange time right now and, and there's not much traveling going on but you give such exquisite detail about all the places that are visited in sex and vanity and especially capri which i have not been to sadly no, i've seen neither. and i've kind of googled lots of like staying in positano uh, which i'm never going to be able to afford <laughs> at this rate um but uh you kind of get transported there anyway through your language and your words, which is, of course, a joy. But um, I know that you do visit Capri a lot, correct? I do. I've been lucky enough to, to go there a number of times. And it's one of these places where, you know, I first went there on a sort of big sort of package tour trip of Italy with my family. You know, we saw, I think, 18,000 cities in two <laughs> weeks um, on a bus. And so we were on Capri for literally three, four hours. We took the ferry over like most people. And immediately I said, why are we only here for a day? Like, this is a place that you want to explore again and again. You need lots of time there. So that's my recommendation for, for most people because it's such a gem of an island. Mm -hmm. And it really does seduce you. And you can actually do it in a very affordable way. Um, one of the best hotels there is the one-star budget hotel. You know, they just do things so perfectly. So you don't have to spend 800 euros a night on a room if yeah. you don't want to. And what's the name of that hotel? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, called, it's called La Tosca. Totally going to look that up straight after this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's the number one, you know, gets the number one reviews on TripAdvisor because it is just this lovely bed and breakfast. And really it's, I love it. I, I stayed there for years, you know, because it's really all you need. Yeah. So did you, you know, have to do beautiful. another research trip to go back to Capri to write the book, or were you just there anyway? I mean, that was my plot. My whole idea <laughs> was to like get this book deal so I could write the book in Capri, but of course it never happens the way you plan it, right? And I ended up, you know, being in LA in a corner, in that corner right there, <laughs> hammering it out over four months in a panic. Um, but I had been, you know, the, the summer before. So, you know, I, I know the island very well now. I can just look at old pictures and, and just remember what I want to write about. Um, so cool. I wanted to ask you specifically about weddings because I think we, mm. so I think Natalie's probably the same as me in that in our lives, there was a proliferation of weddings between mid 20s to early 30s and then they kind of taper off. But you do have that moment in life, don't you, where you think, Christ, another wedding, another outfit, another gift. <laughs> do you love them? I really don't, <laughs> I have to tell you. <laughs> Precisely because I, I have been there. I've, you know, I've had, I had those experiences all through my 20s and 30s. And, and now we're seeing the flip side of it where all my friends are getting divorced, mm -hmm. you know. So um, they should do divorce parties, you know, really. I feel like there might be more fun but... depending on how good the divorce was. <laughs> yeah, but no, but this is a summer romance. So we should, we should steer back there. But yeah, I, I, I have been. And, and so, so many of those weddings did sort of inspire 
the wedding scenes that I write in my books. Um, because it's a combination of some very intimate, special occasions and then some completely crazy, over-the-top events. Yeah, I mean, the, the wedding that you build up to in, in part one of Sex and Vanity is extravagance personified. But again, it's sort of, I'm kind of really impressed with how you, you write and obviously you're mock, well, not mocking even, the, the sort of way you write about these people, you're, you're sort of putting quite a, a, a close magnifying glass on them, but it's not done in a really mean cruel way it kind of still allows you to kind of take a glimpse into that world make up your own mind and then kind of zoom back out of it again um but I wonder if uh, any of your friends or acquaintances ever recognize situations from your books that you've observed and fictionalized in some way they they do and and that's part of the enjoyment for I think for for my friends they they sort of recognize themselves in my books they circle pages I, I really play tricks where I really put I embed as many of my friends and family as I can in in the books um and just so you know they recognize themselves and have fun with it but um you know it's all in good fun yeah and and you know I I the, the nasty characters are never based on people I know. So, yeah, that's they, the they way might to do it. Be, but they, they don't recognize themselves. <laughs> they all think it's the other one. No, exactly. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's, I'm, I'm really, you know, I think that's the point of satire. It's really mm. in a way to point out all the sort of remarkable foibles of what, what we go through as people living in that thing called society. You know, all, all the strange little rituals and, and obsessions that we're all obsessed with. And, and we're poking fun at it and we're making people think about, you know, what actually are we doing? And does this make any sense? Or is this really a waste of time? What's the most extravagant wedding that you've attended? I once went to a wedding that um, it took place in, in one European country and it involved um, three palaces <gasps> on three different nights. Wow. Oh my gosh. And yeah, and you know, I knew it would be somewhat lavish. I didn't know it would be as lavish as it became because, you know, the, the bride who was a friend was trying to surprise everyone. Mm. And to her, to her credit, she really cared so much about making it an amazing lifetime experience for her guests. You know, she wasn't a bridezilla. She, she was such a thoughtful person that she really wanted to treat her friends to these amazing extravaganzas. But the first night was sort of, they called it casual night. You know, and it's just sort of, you know, the people who've arrived that, that are jet lagged, you know, let's all just meet for drinks. And one of her relatives was hosting just a little gathering for drinks. And I remember approaching palace number one, <laughs> not knowing I was going to palace. Totally cash. One. Yeah, totally. I was totally cash. I was literally wearing, you know, just like a polo shirt and a pair of slacks. And the people sort of coming from all corners, gathering and going into the, the palace were just, they were dripping dripping with jewels <laughs> on casual night you know and I was like oh god what have we gotten ourselves into you know <laughs> yeah so I, I feel and like that that story is kind of transported its way into your book because there's a similar thing with Charlotte when they arrive at the, at the again casual night of the wedding and she's like precisely <laughs> Yeah. precisely you actually read the book I'm, I'm so pleased yeah, of course of course um yeah that's what we like to do on this podcast is actually read the book um, I know I'm, I was giving you a bit of a <laughs> I was gonna say do you often do that do you do like tests when you're doing interviews and like see if somebody's gonna pick you up on it <laughs> not usually not just usually. sometimes I want to know about can I just briefly ask about palaces two mm. and three then yeah of course if that was palace one 
yeah, Palace One was Casual Night, yeah. and then Palace Two just it just got more and more over the type top night after night, and you know, so Palace Two was in this. I'm trying to say it without giving away sure, too much, sure. just to protect, <laughs> you know. Palace 2 involved like this very elaborate tour of the grounds and there were amazing water features. You know, there were all these different strange fountains. And so there was like a tour of fountains and then it was just incredibly lavish spread um, and a sort of midnight dessert party, um, you know, in, in the ruins of this castle. And then, and then on the third night, you know, it sort of, it ended with this spectacular fireworks show. Mm. You know, wow. um, yeah. And, of... and what was the best dish that you ate across those three days? <laughs> you know, after the fireworks show, um, they did this thing that was really cool. There was dancing, mm. but the DJ arranged it so that it went, it started, I think, with like sort of 1930s jazz and it would progress decade by decade into like 50s music and then Elvis and then 60s and 70s, you know, so every generation could dance and appreciate mm -hmm. their music, you know, because there, there were some people there that were, you know, older, but they could do the jig and all the, all the you know, whatever it is that they could, you know, do the, do the twist or you know, <laughs> things like that. Um, and then it got to a point where it, you know, it was just old fashioned, fun sort of dance music. Um, and then at one o'clock they rolled out um, hot dogs. Nice. Just an amazing Perfect. spread of like sausages and hot dogs. It's like that, that was my favorite just to eat a hot <laughs> dog. Simple at, things. Yeah. At 2 a.m. in a palace, you know, <laughs> I mean. Yeah. What more can you ask for really? Yeah. You know? How many princesses can say that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They've had sausage in a palace at 2 a.m. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm just going to leave that one there. Um, <laughs> So um, another thing that I really enjoyed about your book is the footnotes that you do throughout, um, because I am somebody who it always really bugs me if I see anything, whether it's like on an advert or just anything in a magazine where they have like an asterisk or a number to say there's a footnote and then the footnote is nowhere to be seen. It's what? like, I know <laughs> it happens more often than you would really? think. Yeah. That's so strange. Yeah. I, I especially okay. look, okay, this is like revealing way too much about <laughs> my slightly neurotic nature, probably. But yeah, on adverts, especially, there'll be little asterisks next to, you know, a, a stat or something. And then, yeah, it's kind of missed off. Where, where can you find what that means? But thankfully, you don't do that hmm. in your book, Kevin. Um, and uh, I did take some of your advice. So I have looked up what a Mithraic ritual is from one of your footnotes. <laughs> Very interesting. And I kind of had like a hint of that anyway from my uh, love of Donna Tartt's The Secret History, um, which kind of delves, I think, into a bit of that territory. But there was one that I particularly... That's such a fantastic book. Oh, I, I love, I, that, I love book. that book. Yeah, I it's really kind of, do, it's the yeah. one that I uh, recommend and give to people all the time, even though I know, I figure that most people should have read it by now. Yeah. So actually, I don't know, Phil, if you've ever read The Secret No, I haven't. <gasps> so good. It's so good. I've kind of, yeah, I've bought loads of copies of it. It's, it's set in a in a college and it's this very eclectic cast of characters. There's twins, there's, and they're, they're kind of studying classics and Greek and um, yeah, but it's kind of like a, it's a mystery as well. And it's just told and in a really interesting happens. way. Yeah. <laughs> something happens. Yeah. I think, I think you know that on the first page, I think. No, you do. Yeah, you do. Yeah. yeah. Somebody yeah. dies. Um, and uh, yeah, then it's working out. It's like a, a sort of backwards murder mystery. Okay. Um, yeah, it's really cool. It's really cool. Anyway, like, let it's me try a lot of fun. Really, yeah. really worth reading. I think it it really holds up too. You know, because I yeah. think she she wrote it in the 
early 90s, mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. think. Because I think I read it when I was first at university. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And then revisit it because it's just like, yeah, it's really good. And then um, I write as well, uh, but nowhere near your status yet, <laughs> Kevin. Uh, but Donna Tart's one of those things where you, every time I read it, I'm like, yeah, why do I bother? <laughs> <laughs> that's so good <laughs> but anyway um i just want to i have that feeling too do i you? really do I, I read books and i just go oh my god i'm just gonna give up i'm just gonna go because these this this person's too good and i should just you know not clog the world with my books and just let this person just keep writing more you know <laughs> i think there's definitely space and lots of people including ourselves really enjoy your yeah, books yeah. Um, i'm really surprised uh, to hear you say that kevin i would have thought in a way it's probably reassuring for, for the likes of natalie who are writing and trying to start off that that you feel that way because i would have thought you've you're at a level now where you would um recognize the success that you've enjoyed and the fact that film companies keep coming after your books is, is must be further affirmation that you're doing the right thing no i feel like <laughs> every <laughs> chance i get is my last <laughs> um and you know I, I really don't take things for granted and i i you know maybe it's just my nature to be neurotic and and and, and sort of self-critical but i'm still sort of in that pinch me stage of like really they're actually going to publish this um, okay, fine. Let's see if it works. You know. Wow. But I mean, even earlier on in the conversation, I couldn't believe you. To, uh, you didn't quite say you'd bashed it out, but you hammered it out or something in four months. I mean, I think that's very quick as well, isn't it? It was. It was kind of bizarrely quick, but mm. um, it just it just was the way it had to happen because I was given a very discreet window to sort of do the book before I had to go back to the TV work. And did it flow yeah. out of you? with such pace or was the there was the pace created by the pressure you know it actually really did flow um and i was actually quite dubious as to whether i could pull it off and and really you know at the back of my mind i was like oh i'm gonna fudge it and i'm gonna cheat and i'm gonna end up taking two extra months or whatever but it really did happen in four months and um i guess it, it also helped that i think i i'd been writing this book in my mind for about 10 years so so much of it was already there right and I've been collecting all the scenes and the experiences to sort of just, you know, I hate to use this visual, but I just sort of vomited it all, all out, <laughs> <laughs> you know, in four months. Yeah. And then how was the uh, editing? Because that's the bit that I, <laughs> I particularly struggle with still. Well, I, I do this thing where I will just sort of write all day. Mm -hmm. And then the next day I'll go back, I'll start it and see what I've written and I'll edit as I go along. And then that gets me into the next chapter. It's sort of, mm -hmm. it's like a swing that propels me into the next chapter and the next story. So I edit as I go. And then with this book, you know, I, I turned it in in thirds to my editor, who is amazing, you know, mm -hmm. and she would just, you know, respond almost within days with her edits. And so it was, it was like a military operation, really. Yeah. That's wow. quite cool, though, as well, too. I think it's quite unusual, from what I can gather, to hand in a book to an editor in stages. But, I mean, you can kind of see in this book, because you've got sort of part one and part two, that may, was it those, the kind of, the chunks you sent over? It wasn't, actually. Mm. Um, yeah, it just, it was all very haphazard, because it, it did happen so quickly. And, you know, it, it was certainly an unusual circumstance. But, you know, it, it ended up working out. Hey, right. hey, Natalie, hang on, what happened to that footnote? Mm. Oh, yeah, I've got it here. Um, so uh, I've got the footnote because, again, you know, you do this with 
all of your writing, I think you offer a window into a world that some people might know, but other people uh, might not know. And I did not know this one. Um, so you say Lucy might have grown up in the same pre-war Rosaria Candela design building as her friend, but Isabel's life was several notches more glamorous. For starters, her father was a diplomat that, according to the building's elevator men, hailed from one of Asia's most successful business dynasties. So the Chu family occupied the sprawling 18-room duplex penthouse, while the Churchills lived in a classic seven on the 10th floor. And then your footnote is, uh, New York real estate speak for a pre-war apartment that consists of seven rooms, a formal living room, a dining room, a separate kitchen, three full bedrooms and a maid's room. And in 2019, the average median price for a classic seven was $4.6 million. <laughs> And there such, you have it. Such good detail. But I didn't know like that it was that classic seven rooms. There's so much interesting, bizarre specificity in the New York real estate mm. world that doesn't apply anywhere else. You know, how they describe apartments, how deals are done and, you know, different types of buildings, co-op buildings, non-co-op buildings, condos. It's, it's a very, very specific world um, that you have to sort of get used to. Yeah, um, it made me think of, because I've been watching, and I know you do as well, Phil, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Yeah. And I'm guessing that she probably lives in a classic seven. I don't know if you've seen that show. I haven't. But, but it's, it, yeah, it's very it, much it, like it there's would, a maid's room yeah. and there's, yeah, exactly as you described there, in New York on the Upper East Side. and um, Just related to that, Kevin, I wanted to ask you about the information that you also give us in, in brackets in the book as well, you know, with the schools mm. and the kind of, it's almost like a, a really 30-second um, social portrait of the characters that you're introducing to us and i found it really useful but i'm not sure because i'm from this side of the pond whether i understood all the schools and all the politics around all the schools is that can you explain a bit of that to me i mean it was it was completely tongue-in-cheek first of all you know um it was a way to add sort of um just sort of satirization of of these people because i found that when i first moved to new york and i would meet these sort of elite wasps you know, parties or whatever, within three minutes, they would, they would have name dropped all their schools to you, <laughs> you know, starting with kindergarten. And it's this, it's the school name game exchange, you know, um, as if you're in some sort of, you're sort of handing your whole resume over to them, um, which I just found very amusing, you know, and, and lots of the name, Harvard, 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 yeah. Princeton, Princeton, you know, everyone's just dropping their schools. And so I wanted to sort of make fun of that by including these brackets so that everyone knows where they stand the minute they see a character. And when people- you know, If you're part of that world. When people did that to you um, when you first moved to New York, how did you respond to that? Because I don't know, you wouldn't have had the same school history, would you? No, and I, I just really loved horrifying them with the fact <laughs> that I went to public school, which, you know, in the US public school really is public school. It's it's not the private schools right, at all. Right, right. Um, so they couldn't place me. They were just horrified. <laughs> And, and um, I, just, I really have fun, you know, sort of, you know, sort of teasing snobs, put it, put it this way. So it's, you know, for me, it was sort of always fun to just sort of yeah. see how I could, because it makes them uncomfortable when they can't socially stratify you. Yeah. And they wonder, why is he here? Why is he friends of this person if he didn't go to Princeton? You know, like schools are so important to these people, um, especially in your early 20s. You know, it sort of defines you when you come out into the world, into that sort of New York elite world. So I really wanted to skewer that in a way. But it became a really interesting way to compose a character and really think about their whole lives and their mm -hmm. backgrounds. 
And so I, I really took it seriously. I really did a lot of research and I would really think about every single character, like where would they have gone? Mm. What, what was their trajectory? And it's, it's fascinating because I've had friends, you know, and, and some people actually call me up in the, over the last few weeks as, as the book has been released. And, you know, they're like, okay, I need to talk about this character. Why did she go to this great prep school and end up in this shitty uni? What happened? I need to know, you know? <laughs> um, so it's, it's funny, you know, so there's, there's levels of game playing happening um, that, that are like my footnotes. You can be as involved as you want. You can go deeper on a level or you don't have to. It could be completely meaningless. Or it could, you know, be filled with meaning, depending on, on who you are and what you care about. Am I right in thinking that, you know, if you, presumably if you've been to these weddings with three palaces, that you've successfully managed to penetrate that world? So even though you've had fun, you know, in, you've obviously been at social occasions where you've had fun with the whole school thing. You also, you must have been accepted into the, that world as well. I would say <laughs> that, um, I mean, that's very generous of you to say. Okay, is it not true? <laughs> um I feel like I'm a, a visitor in this world occasionally, you know, um, I, I just, I have such a vast diversity of friends from all walks of life. And a few of them are posh, a few of them are in that world. And so I've been able to sort of peek behind the curtain of, of that world. But I wouldn't say I'm in any way, I don't think I've in any way sort of penetrated in the way that you, you know, I, I'm not going to probably end up being invited to their clubs right i'm not going to marry into their families you know um i've been a visitor and i think they're always nice to visitors mm -hmm. you know because you're sort of harmless and you're not a social threat yeah whatsoever. i also i also wonder with yeah. um uh so i'd say sort of in the uk i think people do it with cultural references as well which i'm guessing you probably experienced too so they'll sort of drop what i whatever they've been reading or which film they last saw but they're, they're using it as like a social one-upmanship of like oh do you not know this mm, reference mm. to Bunuel? like how could you not know that and mm. uh, i remember when i kind of first went to university and and i didn't know loads of these things and but just being like what you know not being uh, afraid I suppose of saying what is that and people going like oh do you not know um, and then automatically kind of looking down on you in some way and um, there was a particular group of friends who uh, well, well I say friends uh, people at university who thought I was really cute because I didn't just always uh, I, I kind of really enjoyed Hollywood blockbusters and action films and stuff and they thought that was really like niche and I was like I'm pretty sure it's quite mainstream actually <laughs> but sure um but yeah, I think it's just the kind of thing. It's funny, those sort of social clues that people give. Um, so I want to hear the story of how you ended up doing a visual book for Oprah Winfrey. Well, I sort of had a whole career after, after going to, you know, I moved to New York to go to Parsons School of Design. And so, I, you know, in, in addition to having a writing degree, I had a whole visual arts sort of degree. And it, my idea was to sort of put them both together and be able to do um, a, a vast array of projects, which is actually what happened. You know, I sort of end, end up being the sort of the person you went to that would do these very odd projects, um, mm -hmm. like a book for Oprah Winfrey, because <laughs> this was back in 2011, and she had just wrapped up her show. You know, she had this historic, groundbreaking television show that had been on for 25 years, I think, 25 years, yeah. I think that's about right. And she was retiring, you know, she was ending the show, and so, this was the tribute book, huge coffee table book tribute to her show. And I was sort of part of the team. I was hired to sort of be the creative consultant 
that would work with the photographers, with the writers, with the designers to sort of just make sure everything, you know, was packaged into a beautiful book. Amazing. And so I was commuting to Chicago, you know, sort of every week and working with the, with the authors, working with the writers. We had 22 guest writers for the book, um, among them Julia Roberts, Bono, Nelson Mandela, Toni Morrison, um, Maya Angelou. Um, and it was my job to get them photographed and, you know, to help make sure their essays looked beautiful in the book. So it was really a fascinating project because I got to learn so much about her and her contribution really to American culture. And, you know, I was in the archive just sort of looking for all the amazing photographs of her over 25 years. So that is sounds cool. quite boring when I talk about it. No, no, it no, 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 the opposite. I was, oh, really? yeah. I was wondering yeah. how, you got, how you even got hired onto a gig like that. It just became one of my sort of niche specialties. Um, I became um, known as a sort of a, a packager and a producer of these beautiful, lavish celebrity visual books. And it all began because I did a book for Elizabeth Taylor. So <laughs> back in 2001, I did a book of hers called My Love Affair with Jewelry. And it was this amazing book that was all about her jewelry collection. And I was the photo curator of that. So I, I got to actually handle her, you know, some of these, ama you know, these amazing jewels and, you know, she would tell stories about them wow. in the book. Like, oh, you know, Richard Burton gave me this, this after he beat me up and, you know, <sighs> I'm paraphrasing and this is not true, of course, you know, <laughs> but she'd tell all the anecdotes. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Like, or, or I, I, you know, this is the Peregrina Pearl. Um, it's a pearl that, this his, it's the, the most historic um, pear-shaped pearl in the world. It's like, this big, huge. And she'd tell a story about how her Maltese dog was chewing on it. You know? <laughs> or <laughs> this six million dollar, you couldn't find one day and then she thought her dog was chewing on her bone and it turned out to be the pearl. Uh, so it was an amazing book, yeah. amazing project. It's incredible um, that you've done all I, of that. Yeah, yeah. So the, there's this whole world of all these books that I produced for other people and really had a fun time doing it. And I always was very comfortable sort of being the behind the scenes person where my job was to make them look good, whether it was in a book or whether it was in a website or you know, whether it was designing a, a, a set for a theater piece, um, that's what I did. Who else have you done books for? Um, Gore Vidal, um, Michael Corder, Gloria Vanderbilt. Um, I don't know if you know um, of Celia Cruz. Have you heard of no. her? She's the queen of salsa. Right. Yeah. She yeah. basically invented, you know, she's this colorful, flamboyant character from yeah. Cuba. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a pretty long list because it was 15 years of my life. Wow. Really, you know, yeah. Working in New York, sort of in sort of tangentially in the publishing industry. It's great that I kind of want to see the, the coffee table book of sex and vanity <laughs> with like fictional photos of all the places you've been to. And <laughs> they're not actually fictional. I mean, every place I go to yeah. that I write about is true. in the books is a real place. You know, a um, couple of places are just, the names are disguised just, just to protect, especially the private clubs, for example, in, in the second half of the book. But in Capri, everything is as you, as you see it. And um, I don't know if you follow me on social media, but on Instagram, I've actually been posting pictures of all these places, um, the villas and the restaurants and the food. And it's, you know, just trying to give people a sort of immersive experience. So you're doing it already. As they read the book. Yeah. I'm more yeah. of a Twitter person, less on Insta. So I definitely need yeah. to check that, out. check that out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. But that's a great idea. I should do a visual book on, on sex and yeah. That'd be fun. It would be really yeah. fun. 
and recipes um, and such. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's the thing. Like, there's so much food that I want to eat from there, and talk of Venetian peaches and all that kind of stuff is just is just a joy. And um, just before we kind of move on to other work you've done, I just want to ask a couple of other things about uh, the the pros of this. And one was that I think you're really smart and clever and I know this was true of crazy rich Asians as well about how you present racism in your book and it's just kind of it's you sort of it's it's part of the nature of the characters that you've created and they sling some real barbs but from so many different perspectives so whether it's a Chinese character or somebody from mixed heritage or or Jewish. Um, I wondered what kind of feedback you've had about that thread that does seem to come up in your writing. In the latest book, in Sex and Vanity, it's, it's been incredibly positive, I, I think. And I've really heard a lot from, you know, Lucy, the main character, she's, she's Hapa. She's, she's biracial. Her, yeah. her mother is Chinese-American and her father is 100% white Anglo-Saxon Protestant from a Mayflower family in a very distinguished blue blood. And apparently and i don't know if this is true there's never been a character like this like there's never been a heroine of a book that's actually um biracial in this way and so i've been hearing from so many biracial people who have read the book and who have said thank you you know mm -hmm. like you're finally giving voice to something i've never seen before on a page um i have a friend who is hapa and he said he you know he was screenshotting so many of the scenes and dialogues because they're exactly the questions that people ask him yeah. that are so bizarrely sort of um, just mindlessly racist, I think. You know, it's not intentional. Yeah, that's the thing. But, like the, you know, the way it's written, like you can tell that the characters don't even think they're saying anything wrong. They're just no, asking exactly. a question. <laughs> exactly. And, and sometimes it, it comes even from a place of love. And mm -hmm. I think that's one of the points I was trying to make, that it's possible to love someone and have someone in your family and be just subconsciously racist towards them in a way that you don't even quite understand you know but when a girl is asked over and over a question like you know so what do you feel like do you feel more asian or do you feel more caucasian you know i mean it's a bizarre question to ask someone who's 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 mixed race yeah yeah and you even know, or, you know the things you yeah. put in about out about how oh like your your cheekbones are so great you get that from your mother but it's a you know it's a loaded uh, comment because the mother is Chinese so that's great but then is it you know it's there's just kind of so much wrapped up in in the language of that which um I really enjoyed and it's great yeah. that you're getting really good feedback for it as well thank you yeah I mean that you know I think there's so many mixed messages people send mm -hmm. unintentionally with things that they say and it's for for Lucy for my character it's it's like a thousand paper cuts over a lifetime and it's it's why she does the crazy things she does. You know, I you know I've also had feedback from from some readers going, God, I don't like her. She's she's doing all these bad things. You know, like why can't she be more like Rachel Chu, who's the heroine of my other books? Yeah. You know, it's like, well, she's nineteen years old. First of all, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. she's <laughs> about a decade younger than Rachel, and this is a very different story. And she's going through a whole different set of experiences. And you know, I'm I'm sorry she isn't perfect, but. <laughs> yeah that's the whole point <laughs> yeah for so, sure yeah um so we should probably talk about uh this one i believe is being made into a movie as well i'm knocking on wood <laughs> hope so yeah absolutely you know sony and sk global have, have bought the rights and they're very excited to just really sort of launch this into a movie um 
But I also read online, it's Kevin, that they're, film. they're working yeah. on a sequel, a film sequel to, to Crazy Rich Asians. So is there a chronology to which will come first? No, there, there really isn't, because it's, it's actually two different studios. Right. Um, the Crazy Rich Asians 2 is being done by Warner Brothers. And um, this is, a, you know, a whole other book and a whole different series. And it's being done, done by Sony. And uh, it'll be interesting to see which actually <laughs> makes it to the theaters first. You know, um, I think all of Hollywood at the moment is on pause. Yeah. You know, and um, there's a lot of development going on. But people are hoping, you know, when, the minute they can safely sort of hit play and, and start filming again safely, I think that's what everyone wants to do. But am I right in saying it's the same production company, even though it's different studios? Um, it. It's different studios and it's half of one production company. Oh, so okay. Crazy Rich Asians was produced by Color Force, which is the amazing production company um, um, headed by Nina Jacobson. And SK Global was also involved. Um, but this time it's just SK Global and, Sid and, and, and Sony. And how involved, are, how hands-on are you in, in the process? Because I know you were for Crazy Rich Asians. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be a producer as well. On, on this film and um, you know, John Panati who heads SK Global and I, we have such a really great relationship and we've already been talking about casting and directors and, and who to adapt the screenplay. So I expect I'll, I'll be pretty hands-on involved. Um, but I really, I, I, maybe it's because I had such a good experience and it's so rare. I really trust the Hollywood people. Whoa, whoa, do... whoa, whoa, hang on a minute. You trust the <laughs> Hollywood really, people? I... <laughs> I trust these Hollywood people, <laughs> you know, I trust John, I trust his team. And, you know, I think in many ways, I found in my experience with Crazy Rich Asians, like less is more, you know, I, I don't want to interfere with the creative process of what happens when producers work with directors, for example, you know, John Chu, who did Crazy Rich Asians was, was such a genius. And the last thing I wanted to do was to be that annoying author coming in at every minute going, oh, wait, wait, look at this line of the script. It has to be changed, you know, or look, that's, the set's not right, you know, because you'd really, it, you know, when you sell your film rights, you really, it's, you're giving up a baby and, um, you, you, you know, you're handing it over and you're really trusting that they're going to raise it well. And so you have to, you know, you have to sort of let go in a way and just be that supportive you're now a godparent. So you're, you're there to advise and guide, but I think if, if you're there to sort of be a control freak, it, that's a recipe for disaster. But you know, Kevin, they, they did raise it well, didn't they? I mean, I loved that movie. I thought it was such a great movie. I thought it was so distinctive as well. I hadn't seen anything like that before on the big screen. And I wonder, how, how do you feel as the man who created the story, knowing that not only does it go box office global smash all over the world, but people like Ken Jong are referring to it in their stand-up sets on Netflix. I mean, you, you're properly penetrating everything, aren't you? It's, it's still, I think I'm really still in shock, quite frankly. You know, I just never in my life did I think I would, number one, get a book published. Right. <laughs> number two, sell the film rights. Number three, have this amazing dream team of director and, you know, the top talent in the world. Michelle Yeoh. Yeah. Michelle Yeoh, who I have worshipped since I was younger, you know, I'll just, just say that diplomatically because <laughs> <laughs> she's in no way ancient, you know, but I am a little bit younger than she is. Um, but, you know, I loved her dearly, you know, since I was a kid and just to see her in my movie and to see all these, Ken Jeong, all these amazing talents and to have made a movie that, you know, I was just, I just didn't want it to bomb. 
that yeah. was my goal. It's like, just please don't fail because we'll never get another movie with an Asian cast again, ever, for the rest of Hollywood history, <laughs> you know? Um, and so for it to perform that well all over the world um, was just... It's kind of a ridiculous amount really, of pressure, isn't it? Because it's, yeah. you know, they, such, a, such a lot was made of it, obviously shamefully in this day and age that it was... A, a, an anomaly to have a, an all Asian cast when that shouldn't be the case at all. But then I can only imagine what it must have been like to be involved in that production. And was uh, hopefully there was a sense that people obviously wanted it to be a success. But if in any way it was criticised, that was it. You, you've then ruined it for everyone, which is so unfair. So it was great that that didn't happen. Yeah, and the stakes were so high, which is why I think we were so purposeful about every decision we made you know, with, with the script, with the casting, with, with, with filming on location, because we knew that we were representing so much and, and that it would, it would really count for so much if this movie could succeed. Um, because it's proven, it, it proved to Hollywood that this could work. Mm. And since then, there've been so many amazing new movies and TV series and, you know, s streaming shows that have come on, you know, that really do feature diverse casts in a whole new way and, and so you know it's it's amazing to know that we were part of that sea change and that hopefully it'll, it'll, it'll keep growing and continuing because up until the release of that film uh, and people might think i'm crazy when i say this but I, I think arguably the the film franchise that had the most success with diverse casting was the fast and furious franchise wasn't it you know, you're much more of a, you'd be the expert okay. than I would, but it, that sounds like that could be right. Yeah, I mean, they, they you know. so, but they had a real range of, of cast members and what the figures show on those films is that they're doing well in territories that other Hollywood movies don't do well in because the people can see on screen reflections of people they recognise. The reason I make that point Absolutely. is that you would think yeah. that Hollywood would cotton on to that and even if they don't want to do it for good <laughs> yeah. moral reasons, they do it for <laughs> money reasons. I think what happened in the industry was because every studio, almost every studio got bought up by some big corporation. They became part of these conglomerates. And when that happens and you have to satisfy stockholders, shareholders, you know, it's all about proving the profit. And once you have to show profit every quarter, you really want to minimize, minimize risk. Mm. So, you, you know, the game is let's not take any risk at all. We know Spider-Man will work. We know Marvel movies mm. will work. We know if we cast Brad Pitt or Reese Witherspoon in a movie, it's going to do well. So they just got stuck on a formula mm. where they, it was sort of, let's take zero risk. We can't afford that risk. And what we were telling them, we're trying to tell Hollywood was, well, you know, Hollywood used to be a pioneer. Mm. You know, Hollywood used to create stars. Um, if you look what happened yeah. in, you know, for, for, for decades, you know, they were the studio system. And they created many, many non-white stars. Omar Sharif, um, Nancy Kwan, who is my cousin, you know, was sort of the barrier-breaking Asian actress of the 60s. Um, so the list is long, you know, of, of, but they could break talent and they did it again with Crazy Rotations. Because, you know, un until that movie, many of the stars that were in it um, were not as well known as they are now. Henry Golding, mm -hmm. you know, Aquafina, Gemma Chan, you know, you know, they, they're superstars now. Mm. Yeah. Huge congratulations to you for breaking that glass ceiling because it's a, it's a fantastic achievement, Kevin, to you and to the, the film staff. Thank you. I was just, you know, one soldier in a 
huge army, mm. you know, that sort of made it happen. Yeah. And that includes the viewers. That includes the people that came out and supported the movie all over the world that said, yes, we want this, you know. So, but, but thanks. You know what? I've just, it suddenly dawned on me. We've been having such a lovely time talking to you. We haven't yet asked you to read from the book. And we normally, we normally do it right at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let's get you to, uh, to read us a bit from Sex and Vanity. Just explain where we, I think we're joining quite early on, aren't we? So there's, there's obviously there's no spoilers here. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm reading from chapter two. And this is really sort of um, the scene that sets up all the action in the book. Um, and it's chapter two, Hotel Bertolucci, Capri, Italy. The hostess tried to show Lucy and Charlotte to a table in the middle of the lunchroom, but Charlotte was having none of it. We'll sit here if you don't mind. She huffed, shoving her yellow canvas tote bag firmly onto a table by the window as if she were planting the first flag on the South Pole. The hostess backed away with a shrug as Charlotte continued to fume. We specifically reserved rooms with ocean views, and now they're telling us we can't have them because some other guests extended their stay? What a sham. Uh, don't you think they really are booked up because of the wedding? Lucy wondered. Well, that's not our problem. These people who overstayed should be moved into the rooms that they've pawned off on us. Why should we have to suffer and take the rooms facing that damn cat licking its balls in the alley? And why aren't the cats on this island neutered? Lucy noticed a few people in the dining room looking up in their direction and thought she'd better try harder to placate her cousin. Well, as far as alleys go, it's a very nice one. There's no such thing as a nice alley, Lucy. Hobos hang out in alleys, and people go into alleys to do three things, vomit, do drug deals, or get stabbed. How's very that? true it's perfect very true. that's how it is it's perfect if people haven't got the sense already like the it's a really funny book and you know comedy is not easy to write um and to write well i don't think so and also um kevin there's not enough of it in our view around do you know what i mean mm. and in times of pandemics that we're living in at the moment and when everything's getting locked down people turn to humor first that so they need to be cheered up i completely agree i mean i i actually don't read much fiction at all i i'm, I'm mainly a non-fiction reader um, but in the past, you know, five months, I've read more fiction than I ever have in my entire life um, because I've really cherished having that escape mm. and escaping into a story, you know, rather than reading another book about politics or current affairs or, you know. And this is such a great depressing. escape because of the amazing locations <laughs> yeah. and the lavish nature of what you're describing to us. So it's a pure escape as well, you know. Thank you. It's meant to, you know, I, I wrote it to be the ultimate beach read and, um, Hopefully that's the case, even if we can't go to the beach right now. Yeah, even if you have to bring in the sand to your living room and just stick your feet in it. <laughs> but you know, Natalie, how nice is it to hear an author of Kevin Stature say that phrase? Do you know what I mean? Because sometimes here, Kevin, in the UK, beach read can be a derogatory term for a book. As if, you know... Well, it, it, it is in the oh, US it, as oh, well. Right, okay. but, you know, but it's ridiculous, isn't it, that it's derogatory? I think it is. And you'll see in all my books, I have absolutely no patience for snobbery or pretension. I really don't. Um, and I really have fun skewering the pretentious literati intellectual characters that sometimes come in and out of my book. Yeah. And you kind of know that if, say, if you were going to find people on the beach and uh, if you kind of did a survey of what people are reading, I always find like the ones that are reading something really heavy, they're kind of sort of looking over at like the magazine. Or something. <laughs> yeah. They know they yeah. don't no. really want to be reading that. <laughs> But they're trying to put up some show for whatever reason. I don't know. And um, what are you writing at the moment, if you don't mind us asking? 
I am working on a TV show for um, STX Entertainment, and it's a one-hour drama series that's going to be set in Asia. I'm calling it sort of um, Downton Abbey meets David Lynch in Asia. Wow. <laughs> okay. So it's going to be I'm in. a mysterious, yeah, it's about a mysterious, powerful, ruthless family um, in, in Asia. Is it going to be more macabre? So very different in tone. Mm. I'm sorry? Is it going to be more macabre <laughs> than we used to from you? I, I don't know if that's the, quite the right work. I think it's surreal. There's okay. going to be a lot of surreal elements and there's going to be mystery and a sort of a thrilling aspect. Um, macabre, we'll, we'll see. I mean, it depends on how we actually flesh out those scenes. But we, we could go there. <laughs> so what's, what's but it, it, will be, it will be blingy and, and shiny and it, you know, it will be set in this crazy rich world, but with, with much more twists and, and sort of cliffhangers and back alleys. I like it. So what stage are you at? You're, you're writing it at the moment. Yes, we're writing at the moment and we're getting to a point where we can, you know, get to filming. But first we have to sort of, you know, finish enough, enough episodes. So I've been sort of um, writing with a whole team, of course. You know, TV is always collaborative. Yeah, those writers' amazing... rooms. Are you doing those on Zoom? Yes, Absolutely. And um, it's, it's, you know, for someone that I used to manage projects and, and, and love working with teams, it's, it's nice to sort of have that and sort of to, to not be the completely 100% responsible person that has to do everything. It's nice to, to share, you know, the load with, with other people. Yeah. And how is it having... And I'm also of, learning. Yeah. I'm I was going to say, because you have your work critiqued on a much more regular basis at different stages, I guess. So how's, how's that process for an, for an author as well? I love it. Um, because TV writing is so specific, you know. In a novel, I'm sort of the god. I can do whatever I want. I can I can make a chapter 90 pages long if I wanted to. Mm -hmm. But in TV, one page is one minute. So, you know, if you've got a one-hour long show, it's that 60 pages. That's it. So it's like a jigsaw puzzle of how do you fit the plot lines and the character development and everything that needs to happen within 60 pages. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's a whole different set of muscles I'm, that I'm working. And um, it also gets to really play with my visual side because I get to really think of scenes and build those scenes visually before putting them down as dialogue, you know. Yeah, I can't wait to see this. So I guess there's no date attached to it specifically? Not yet, not yet specifically. But, you know, hopefully if, if all everything goes the way we want it to, um, possibly by next fall. You know, there'll be something on the air. That'd be cool. Maybe get Michelle Yeoh back in it. <laughs> I only say that she, because I've been fortunate enough to... She can star on everything, as far as I'm, I'm concerned. Yeah, I've been fortunate enough <laughs> to interview I do, her she's... a few times yeah. as well. And she is, she's just like grace personified. Um, yeah, she's remarkable. She truly is. She's she's really kind of a, a rare breed. Um, like such an amazing generous classy lady mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. uh talking of generous you've been very generous with us so we yeah. need to bring this to a conclusion you mentioned you've been reading a lot in the last five months so what are your, are your recommendations going to come from that new fiction pool that you've discovered or will they be from your non-fiction back catalog i mean i can i can do whatever you'd like because <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm, I'm still reading i'm still reading non-fiction as well yeah. Um, but um, a book that I particularly love, you know, that I really, really loved, um, that really got me through the first couple of weeks 
of quarantine when no one knew what was happening mm. and it seemed like we were in the middle of this horrendous plague and no one knew anything about COVID and all that. A Beautiful Crime by Christopher Bolin. Um, it's set in Venice. It's sort of like a talented Mr. Ripley in Venice. There's a con game, but it's also glamorous and glittering. And um, I don't want to give too much away, but it's set in a world that I knew nothing about um, that tangentially, you know, sort of involves Venice. But so it had all the elements I loved, you know, in a book. There's mystery, there was a bit of a romance. There's, you know, at the same time, you get to really know Venice from an insider's point of view. Um, and it was just a page turner. It was amazing. Great. I haven't read that one, but I'm absolutely adding it to the list. Yes, fantastic. Um, another book I really enjoyed was um, Hannah Rothschild's House of um, Trelawney. I don't know if you've no. read it. I haven't read that. I've heard of it. but um... Pronouncing the last yeah, you are. word yeah, you correctly are. or yeah. not. But um, that was really fun. You know, that was a really, really, you know, she did this fantastic satire, you know, sort of on sort of this upper crust family um, in England. And um, I really loved, you know, I just laughed my way through the book. Trelawney sounds Cornish to me. Is that where it's set? Is it in Cornwall? Yes, yeah. absolutely. You know, it was about this sort of very dissipated aristocratic family that sort of lost everything in Cornwall and um, it was lots of fun. Um, so it was my escape into her world. Um, and then there's an amazing um, memoir that was written by my friend Lacey Crawford called, um, I have it right over here, give me one sure. second. Mm. I'll show it to you. Notes on a Silencing oh. by Lacey Crawford. And it's just, I can't say enough about it. It's, it's the most astonishing, remarkable book. Um, it's based on her experiences beginning when she was 15 years old. She went to the most elite private school in, in, in America, um, St. Paul's, um, which has been the school for more sort of senators and presidents and Forbes 400 families and, than any other school. And, and something very traumatic happened to her while she was there. And, and, and so she writes about it in the most beautiful way. Um, it's not the book you think it's going to be. Mm -hmm. That's all I can say. Wow, okay. Um, it's just, it's really a stunning book that really captures, you know, um, I, you know not to give it too, too, too much away, but it really captures that experience in, in a way I've never seen written about before. Wow. And yeah. that's called again? Notes on a Silencing by Lacey, Lacey Crawford. Crawford. Okay, oh, we'll definitely have to yeah. check that out. Um, Kevin, I can't tell you how much we've enjoyed mm. speaking with you and how much I feel we've learned by speaking with you. And I'm uh, bowled over by your creative capacity. I, I didn't know about those picture books and to, to put that alongside the movie making and the writing that you do. It's inspirational, I think. From the heart, it's inspirational. Thank you. Thanks so much. This has been so much fun. Yeah, really? no, I've really enjoyed oh, it. And yeah. Um, yeah, loads of recommendations and other things to get into there. And can't wait to see the TV series whenever that arrives too. Me too. <laughs> so, knocking on wood and let's see what happens. Fantastic. Kevin, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. The brilliant Kevin Kwan there. Can I tell you what my takeaway is from that interview? I had no idea about the body of creative work he'd done aside from his writing. Yeah. And also, A, how impressive that was. Hugely impressive. The Elizabeth Taylor stuff, I could have listened to all mm. day. I know. But also how humble and kind and generous he was with us. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Given that he's a megastar now. 
Yeah, because I think, again, you know, we have a little chat before we start these recordings just to say hi. And neither of us had met or chatted to Kevin Kwan before. And he did sound ridiculously busy. He mm-hmm. had this schedule of a ton of interviews he was doing across the States, I think, um, as well as other work he had on. And yeah, it was just really gracious of him to spend the time with us. And yeah, I'm, I'm always in awe of people who are creative in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. Me too. And also the fact that he... Um not surprise isn't quite the word but he he was still pleased that we'd enjoyed the book so much i think, I think that, he was really pleased that we'd read it yeah yeah do you know what i mean and that and to me that surely if you're at his stage of literary success you assume that a lot of people have read your books but maybe you don't i don't know i don't know but i also think i think that's quite a telling character trait of anybody it's sort of like if you believe the hype then you can become yeah, a bit of an true. asshole anyway <laughs> in, in whatever field you're working in, right? Yeah, Whereas if you true. sort of have some humility about you, um, even though, you know, you could be the most talented person in the world, I, I find that more attractive as a personality trait. Well, I really, really love that hour that we spent with him and I'll really yeah. treasure it, you know what I mean? I just... Yeah. And um, if ever we get to do... This is a dream, by the way, but if we get to do bestseller season five, all from L.A., <laughs> that he's coming back on <laughs> yeah ah oh, that would be so nice yeah so nice I was also again like I, fe- I felt I felt there was a kindred spirit because anybody who's read Donna Tartt's The Secret History is like you sort of latch onto and go oh, and then you just want to talk about it more is that like a secret history club that you're all in I don't think it is because I think it's been pretty widely read. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I didn't mean in volume, but I mean in terms of does everybody have that affinity to it? You yeah, I mean? think so. I think it is one of those books that if you if you read it and you enjoyed it, you really enjoyed it and you really loved the characters and the storytelling. And because quite dramatic things happen in that book, it's one of those things where you're like, oh, and what about when this happened? Um, it's one of those. I must apologise for the poor quality of my voice today, by the way, which I, I can explain it to you. I got back into the gym yesterday for the first time mm. and I've been running on the road and I've been running a steady, ploddy three miles, right? But in mm-hmm. the gym, I like to do intervals on the treadmill. So You, you like sp- to do what? Intervals. Uh, intervals. Yeah. So you spank it for a minute and then you slow down for a minute and then spank it for a minute and slow down for a minute. Mm-hmm. And it's really churned up the old, um, what the doctors call lung butter. And so I'm really sorry about that. But uh, it's really affected the voice today, and it's my own fault for being overly ambitious on a treadmill. I'll never learn. Yeah. Can you please never say the word lung butter again? <laughs> it's a proper medical term. Is it? Is it now? Yeah. <laughs> you know that on account of you being the doctor. Yeah, Dr. Phil. You must have seen my TV show. <laughs> yeah, I think Dr. Phil's a little bit problematic these days. So, yeah, maybe not. Um, am I allowed to say as well, uh, before, you know, we come on and you and I have a, a brief chat before we do these interviews. And yeah. I think because you've got a lot going on, you've started a new radio show, you've got two really small kids, um, you're busy, you're tired, you're quite stressed a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. You were a little bit grumpy uh, Listen, before that is we did this recording. Fair. That is entirely fair. Yeah, that's entirely fair. Yeah, yeah. And I was going to apologise to you privately, but as you raise it publicly, <laughs> I'm really sorry. I think this is payback for, for what you said about my husband at the start. So I thought, fair. come on, no, I'm going to do a bit of loyalty. Uh, the um, yeah, the reason for that was that it was, as we said, eleven o'clock at night. Mm. I'd just done three hours live of all speech and didn't especially want to have to do another hour. <laughs> That was all that was. It was nothing against Kevin or you. But I should have done it with much better grace than I did rather than appearing on the Zoom and go, oh, which is probably what I think I did. 
Yeah, but again, you know, a testament to Kevin Kwan, who I think, whilst I was perhaps unable to snap you out of it quite so quickly, as soon as you got into the chat with him, you're like, you know what, actually, yeah, this is great. Yeah, yeah, he was, yeah, he was great, yeah. Um, you can always snap me out of a fog. Can I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You just don't think you can, but you can. You always make me laugh, <laughs> which is a nice trait to have. Yeah, it's nice to have people laughing at me. <laughs> <laughs> right, next time, adios. Ciao. Any more? Yeah, the, one you're, looking, the one you're looking up next week in South <laughs> Korean. Ooh, okay, yeah, I'll get on that. Yeah.